We will focus on this next topic this evening called Practicing Charity. As we discussed briefly last Wednesday, one of the intentions of wealth is that it be shared. In fact, it's a major intention that God has for wealth is that it be shared. And so we need to look at that topic and and examine it in greater detail because the book of Proverbs has a great deal of information to, to teach us related to charity, to giving. Now just to start on uh, this topic, I want to take us back for a moment to the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century had a vast impact on the Western world, particularly in those regions where the reformers were, were very active. And the two issues that were at the, at the basis of the, of the Reformation, the two issues, two central convictions of the Reformation were these. Number one, that the Bible is the ultimate authority in all of life. And that was given the Latin terminology sola scriptura. You've heard of that before. The reformers broke with Rome, and in that Rome it said that really the Pope is the ultimate authority. Tradition. But the reformers said, no, we have a clear word from God, the Bible, and it is the ultimate authority in all of life, not just religious life, but for all aspects of life. A a second central conviction for the Reformation was that the Bible was to be treated at face value. You're to, to read it in a literal sense. It is not a mystical book. It is written in customary language. And so the Reformers emphasized the concept of literal interpretation. Now these convictions led the Reformers to take the Bible's teaching on a whole host of issues, on everything very, very seriously and apply it to all areas of life. And one of the many areas that they applied it to was the area of work. And so at that time in the 16th century, due to the influence of the Reformation, there was a significant change that happened that occurred in in relation to people's understanding of work, of vocation, of the concept of reward, and of prosperity. They believed that the primary purpose, the reformers did, believed that the primary purpose for human existence is to work hard for the glory of God. There was to be no distinction between the sacred and the secular. You see, the Roman Catholic Church had distinguished between those two worlds. And if you were involved in the church, that was sacred work. And it was more honorable than if you were involved in the the rest of of the labor, uh, the, the economy, If you were a milkmaid or a a lawyer or things like that, that just wasn't the same kind of work. It wasn't as important. But the reformers erased that distinction and said that there was, that all of life is sacred. All of life is to be lived to the glory of God. And so whatever you do, whatever kind of work you have, if it is the kind of work that is a benefit to you, your family, and to society, is a noble work, it is your calling. It is what you've been called to do for the glory of God. Therefore, work hard and enjoy the rewards that God gives. The Reformers emphasize that all of life, every aspect, not just your church life, but your work is to be lived quorum Deo, 
in the presence of God. And all of life, not just ministry, but all of life is to be lived soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. This this conviction led to what has been called the Protestant work ethic. It gave rise to never-before-seen economic development and significant advancement in standards of living. And wherever the Reformation made a, a tremendous impact, it left behind a heritage of improving economic conditions. It lifted people out of poverty. Albert Moeller describes it this way, quote, Even today, economic historians point to the distinction between the cultures of Northern Europe, overwhelmingly shaped by the Reformation, and Southern Europe, less affected by the Reformation, more traditionally Catholic nations. Those societies are distinct in terms of the work ethic that is involved. In Northern Europe, there is considered to be an appropriate guilt for failing to work. That's something that doesn't show up in the same way in Southern Europe. The definitions and the distinctions made between work and leisure, well, this has a great deal to do with theology, and theology always matters. It's always lurking pretty clearly under the surface, if under the surface at all, end quote. What Albert Moeller is emphasizing here is that the Protestant work ethic, the Reformation and its view of Scripture and Scripture's authority over our lives in every area has led to the betterment of society. In fact, we could say this, the consequences of the Protestant Reformation are clearly seen today where you look at those countries which have significant, have had significant populations of Protestant churches where the Reformation has really made a difference. You see countries that are today the wealthiest in the world. Yet while these countries have benefited from the blessings of that movement that began centuries earlier, the citizens, the residents of those countries now have largely rejected the convictions that spawned their prosperity. They've abandoned the theology, they've abandoned belief in the Bible as the sole ultimate authority and abandon the conviction that the Bible is God's word that is to be read and applied in all areas of life. And that has led to what Cotton Mather stated even back in the 1700s when he made this statement, religion begot prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. Indeed, the Protestant Reformation begot prosperity. It brought about this transformation of work ethic. But by bringing that about, and by then rejecting the theology that brought it about, that prosperity then turned to devour the church. And in these same countries that are so prosperous today, the true evangelical church is in decline. Materialism has crept in. In fact, we could really say that this is the curse of prosperity. But that is nothing new. Prosperity has always provided or always presented a distinct threat. Even going back to the time of Israel's 
redemption from slavery in, in Egypt and, its, and Israel's preparation to enter the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land promised to that nation, to that people by God Himself. We read these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to, and 11 to 14. Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 14, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and then lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has not left His people without warnings about the dangers of wealth. He has also not left His people without prescriptions for combating that threat. In fact, one of the primary strategies for keeping wealth in its proper place, one of the primary tools to mortify the love of money is the strategy of generosity, the strategy of giving. And so in the book of Proverbs, the same book that is filled with the pillars of what we could call the Protestant work ethic, this book that is filled with wisdom about the benefits of hard labor, that prosperity is a blessing from God, that same book gives us many lessons on the importance of giving, on the importance of using generosity, using charity as a means to combat the ever-present threat of the love of money. And so our focus this evening is to look at six of these lessons, six lessons on practicing charity from the book of Proverbs. You could say this, six lessons that form a strategy for mortifying the love of money in your own life that we find come from the book of Proverbs itself. Now, just a side note, what do we mean by charity? I want to define that because I'm going to be using that term frequently tonight. The term charity can be be defined this way. Charity is the voluntary giving of help, typically in the form of money, to those in need. The voluntary giving of help, typically in the form of money, to those in need. So let's look at six lessons related to this importance, this important topic of charity. Number one. Practicing charity glorifies God. We must start here. Practicing charity glorifies God. A life of generous giving is essential first and foremost because it gives glory to God. It recognizes that God is the source and the owner of all good things and it esteems God as the gracious Lord who provides undeserved blessing. Now, the book of Proverbs emphasizes this particularly through two Proverbs that I want to focus on under this heading, Practicing Charity Glorifies God. Number one, look at Proverbs 3 verse 9. 
Proverbs 3 verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first, the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce. That same idea is repeated in Proverbs 14 verse 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Now, when we look at these two Proverbs, we notice the same word that's used here, the word honor, and it is the same word also in the original Hebrew. That word translated as honor comes from a verb which conveys the idea of to make heavy, to make weighty, kavod. And the idea here is that giving, giving or acts of charity make God heavy, make God weighty. That's how we show him, that's how we show others his preeminence, his weightiness in our lives. Giving enables us, it provides us with the opportunity to give God His rightful esteem in our lives. That's what the idea is behind those verbs. To honor the Lord, to make Him weighty, to give Him esteem, to give Him prominence. And our acts of giving, our acts of charity do just that. In fact, we see that even from the rest of these Proverbs. For example, look back at Proverbs 3 verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your produce. If you work in in the garden or as as a farmer, you know that the crop that comes in at the beginning is always the best. It is always the best. And so Solomon says we are to make God weighty from giving To God, that which comes in first, that which is best, as opposed to that which comes in at the end, that which is of lesser value. Moreover, when we look at Proverbs 3 verse 9, we realize it comes in the context of of a section where where Solomon exhorts his son, number one, to trust the Lord, to trust the Lord and lean not on his own understanding. He says that in verse 5. And then in verse 7, he exhorts his son to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. And then here in verse 9, to honor the Lord. Well, when we look at the concept of trust and we look at the concept of fear, trust back in 3 verse 5, fear in 3 verse 7, we look at those terms and we say, well, those are kind of abstract ideas. To trust and to fear. How do you quantify that? Well, this exhortation in 3 verse 9, to honor the Lord from wealth and the first fruits, shows the outworking of fear and trust. What is otherwise abstract now comes into a very concrete display. This is how our worship, our trust and our fear is made tangible in our lives. It is through honoring the Lord with our wealth. In fact, we could say this, few things show that a man truly fears and trusts the Lord, as does his commitment to give generously of his wealth 
to make much of God. Let me say that again, and as I do, think of your own life. Few things show that a man fears and trusts the Lord, as does his commitment to give generously of his wealth to make much of God. Just think of it. What is that which most often holds us back from liberality in giving? We don't trust. What is that which often keeps us from giving as generously as we could? We don't fear. And so, Solomon wants us to connect these ideas that trust and fear join together and manifest themselves in tangible worship through our acts of liberal giving. Practicing charity, therefore, glorifies God. Number two, practicing charity aligns our concerns with God's concerns. That's the second major principle from a survey of the book of Proverbs. Practicing charity aligns our concerns with God's concerns. The book of Proverbs echoes what we know is stated elsewhere abundantly throughout the Scripture, namely that God has a special concern for those who are downtrodden and in need. For example, Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 to 8, just one such example, we read this, if there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks." So as the people prepare to enter the land, God is revealing to them what his own concern is, and that they would have a heart for the downtrodden, a heart for the needy, a heart for those who who had serious lack. But even in the book of Proverbs itself, we see that that Solomon, the wise men, are Uh, They describe for us the things that matter to God. And the things that matter to God include those who are poor, those who are needy. For example, Proverbs 15 verse 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. God cares about the widow. That woman who has experienced calamity and has lost her source of protection and provision and love. God cares for the widow. Proverbs 23, verses 10 to 11. Do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. In other words, God is for the orphans. He has a special place in his heart for those who have experienced the calamity of losing a dad. God loves them specially and states here for us through his word that he is their protector. That is what matters to God. And so giving, practicing charity aligns our concerns with the concerns of God. This is a very practical way to do it. Now, having said that, I want to introduce a qualification here. Proverbs does not advocate giving 
generously in an indiscriminate way to anybody who is poor. I want to make that clear. There is a distinction that we can draw from the nuances of the book of Proverbs, and it is this. There are two kinds of poor, two basic categories of needy. The first is what we can call the deserving or the innocent poor. They are those who merit our concern, our acts of generosity. They are the innocent poor. They are the deserving poor. They are those who are poor through no fault of their own. They are those who are poor because of injustice. They are those who are poor because of calamity, the loss of a a husband or the loss of a dad or the loss of a home through a disaster. They're the deserving poor. But there's another kind of poor that Proverbs describes, and it is what we could call the guilty poor, the undeserving poor, those who are poor through their own decisions, because of their own fault. They are the lazy ones. They are those who have squandered their wealth because of gluttony and hedonism. They are those who refuse to accept counsel and are poor because of their stubbornness. Generosity is commanded for the former category, but it is not commanded for those who are poor because of their own foolishness. You could even look at the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul's own teaching, when he says, he who does not work shall not eat. You refuse to work, the church is not going to give you charity. Simple as that, Paul says to the Thessalonians. But when we come back to Proverbs, we see that when we understand this distinction and we have a proper place in our hearts, a proper concern for the deserving poor, the innocent poor, we see that our concerns now begin to align with the concerns of God. Proverbs 14 verse 31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. We see that verb there again makes much of God, to be gracious to the needy, honors God. It aligns us with God by esteeming God and His concerns. Proverbs 22, verse 16, He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. What's the truth behind that? The selfish, miserly, greedy person has concerns that are not aligned with God's and therefore will reap the consequences. Miserliness shows that a man is not aligned with God's priorities. Proverbs 28 verse 8, he who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. Again, one who tries to capitalize on the calamities of others by charging interest and usury is one who will actually pay a penalty. He is one who will be judged and his, whatever he makes, his wealth will eventually be scattered to those from whom he stole it. Proverbs 29 verse 7, the righteous, those who are right in God's eyes, the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. 
So we have an opportunity, Proverbs teaches, that by, by practicing charity, practicing general, general liberal giving, we can align our concerns with God's concerns. I like what Stephen Charnack said in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, as he wrote about the goodness of God. One of the implications is this, and I quote, let our heart be as large in capacity of creatures as God's is in the capacity of a creator. A large heart from Him to us and a narrow heart from us to others will not suit. Let us not think any so far below us as to be unworthy of our care, since God thinks that none that are infinitely distant from Him are too low for His care. End quote. The idea is this. God is a gracious God. He gives abundantly beyond what is ever deserved. That is who He is. And by practicing the same in our own limited ability, we align ourselves with His character. In fact, when we just look at the cross, we look at Christ, we look at God sending His Son for us, we see that giving of our financial resources is just but a small picture of what was done for us in the cross. Jay Packer said, the measure of all love is its giving. The measure of the love of God is the cross of Christ. You could say the measure of our love can be seen, can be made tangible in our giving of our financial resources. Number three, and this is a major one in the book of Proverbs, practicing charity yields spiritual and material rewards. The book of Proverbs stresses that moral actions have predictable outcomes. This is that cause and effect law that I have mentioned many times already in our study of the book of Proverbs. The principle of sowing and reaping is fundamental to biblical wisdom. You see, God is not a facetious tyrant who has programmed into his, his creation an arbitrariness where the farmer will go out to scatter wheat seeds never knowing what kind of crop will grow from it. No, God has created a world of order of predictability, and it is a blessing. And certainly while sin and, and the curse have complicated things and have obscured some of these things, nonetheless, sin has not negated God's law of sowing and reaping. We can expect that foolish choices will bring about painful consequences, and we can expect that sincere, God-honoring obedience will yield reward. That's what God has communicated to us in the book of Proverbs, and as we're going to see in a few moments throughout the Scriptures. And this 
relates to even our giving. This relates to our giving. As I said, this is a a major emphasis in the book of Proverbs that there is a consequence to giving liberally. There is a consequence to honoring the Lord from the first fruits. And that is, He will respond with spiritual and material rewards. Proverbs verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We looked at verse 9 already, but now, to, now notice the second half of the proverb in verse 10. Honor the Lord, esteem Him, make Him weighty from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Look at Proverbs 11 verse 24. There is one who scatters. That's the one who is constantly giving. The one who's sharing of his wealth. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. Proverbs 11 verse 25. The generous man, the man who's constantly giving, he will be prosperous. And he who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 22 verse 9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. There are many more Proverbs along these lines, emphasizing the same kind of spiritual and material benefits to those who will be generous in their giving. And when we look at these Proverbs, there is a paradox here. And to some extent, it it doesn't make sense to our flesh. And the paradox is this, that by giving away of our wealth to honor the Lord leads to increase, not decrease. And I know some of you have experienced this already in very profound ways. You've made those decisions to give sacrificially. And you find yourselves more prosperous than ever. It's a paradox. You would think that by giving away, you would have less. But in God's economy, in this world of sowing and reaping, you actually will have more. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and verses 10 and 11 as well. Paul refers to this very same law. He says this, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Now this is an important an important truth. And we have to admit, many of us have a hard time with this. Our faith is small. We don't quite trust that the Lord will honor His Word. And so what do we do? We err on the side of miserliness, thinking that we will better take care of ourselves by controlling our giving, by holding back, believing that we can better control our futures 
rather than trusting the Lord and believing in His promises that what is done for His glory and according to His ways will reap a reward. Now, in response to this, it raises a question. Is it right to be motivated to give? Is it right to be motivated to practice charity, to be liberal in giving? Is it right to be motivated by promises of future rewards? There's something called altruism. Altruism is an ideology which teaches that the belief, it teaches a belief in or a practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. It's a philosophical position and certainly is present within the church. It's the idea that whenever we do give, and we must give, we must only be motivated by the need. And if we ever are motivated by something more than that, then it is disqualifying. That's altruism. That's altruism. And in the church, it's prevalent. And it's this idea that God's people must be motivated solely by the needs of others. God's people must be motivated solely by the fact that it is God who commands it. You dare not be motivated by anything, addition, anything else. You dare not be motivated by reward because if you are, it's disqualifying. It doesn't count. Now that kind of thinking is particularly present in those who promote socialism. The idea is you need to get your life to the point where you're willing to work for the state and expect nothing in return. It removes the concept of reward. It removes the concept of meriting a blessing, a reward, a wage for the work that you do to a special degree. And like I said, it's prevalent in the church as well. But is it biblical? And the answer to that is not according to the book of Proverbs. One commentator in response to all these promises of reward in the book of Proverbs for giving writes this, quote, The naming of positive consequences for generosity shows that Proverbs is not above naming self-interest for the motivation of good behavior. Both individual and community interest are encompassed in this teaching, since both the self and the other are said to derive good from a person's giving nature. End quote. Look, for example, just at Proverbs 11, verse 17. Look at what Solomon exhorts to his son when he says this, The merciful man does himself good. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. Solomon is teaching his son that yes, our actions do have self-interest involved, and that is not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. In fact, that that idea of self-interest is what is to motivate us to do even greater acts of good. But this self-interest is not just interest for ourselves, 
It is interest for the glory of God, the good of others, and for ourselves. Again, this is not just a teaching of the book of Proverbs. We could look in many different places in the New Testament and in the Old to see how promises are held forth with rewards. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 10, for example. Paul says this, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount holds that out as also a promise. You give to the poor, you do so in concealment and in silence, and your reward will be in heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that those who have left fathers and mothers and homes will not fail to receive many times more in the future. He holds that out to his own disciples. And when we really look, we, f- we see in the New Testament a very robust theology of reward. We dare not be convinced into thinking that that is something to, over which we are to be embarrassed. Something which should not motivate us. No, God has put it in his word indeed to motivate us as one of several motivations towards giving. C.S. Lewis in a, in a sermon entitled, The Weight of Glory, made these comments, and th- I found this particularly helpful. He said this, quote, If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, Love. You see, what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness, was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, 
but too weak. And I would say this, if you're struggling with giving, it could very much come down to this. You think of giving more in terms of abstinence, of doing without something. That that's what giving is about, unselfishness. Whereas the scriptures teach us, the book of Proverbs teaches, Jesus taught that God will give a reward and there is nothing wrong with being motivated by the desire to hear from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your prosperity. Be motivated by that. Trust the Lord. And I'm not calling here for the expectation that if you give $10 tomorrow, there's going to be $100 in your pockets. No, this is not the prosperity gospel. But let us not, in response to the prosperity gospel, embrace altruism, which says we should never be motivated by any kind of desire for reward or for for the desire to please our Lord and to have Him respond in His blessing. Let us be biblically balanced and trust these promises that when we give sacrificially, we will never regret it when it's done the right way for God's glory and God will respond. He will remain no man's debtor and he will show himself a greater giver than you can ever be. Number four, We'll go through the remaining ones quickly now because these receive lesser emphasis in Proverbs but deserve some brief mention. Number four, practicing charity is not the same thing as making loans or securing others' debts. Now, interestingly, this is what Proverbs emphasizes. It it cautions us about thinking that we're doing something good by making loans to others in need and by securing others' debts co-signing for others who have indebtedness. The book of Proverbs, in very clear black and white language, tells us that doing those things is not charity. You are not doing your brother good by entering into a contract of a loan. Don't think of that as charity. And you're actually not doing something good for your brother by co-signing for his next business adventure. Don't think of that as charity. Now, there's a few Proverbs here that I'll mention briefly. Proverbs 6, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, if you have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Proverbs 17, verse 18, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor, a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Let me say it again. You are not practicing charity by loaning money to someone in need. 
And you're not practicing charity by co-signing for their next business venture, which is going to make them finally self-sufficient. That's not how the book of Proverbs commends charity. And let me explain why. Number one, a loan is not a gift. A loan is not a gift. By serving as a lender to someone in need, you are only giving what you expect to receive back. And by doing so, you create a new relationship. And that relationship is, as the book of Proverbs describes, for any who are involved in loans, that relationship is one of a master and his slave. So if there's someone in need and you say, well, let me loan you $500, recognize this, you've changed the whole whole nature of the relationship. Now you're his master. You're not a generous person. You're his master. And now he is indebted to you because you expect that money back. Don't look at that as charity. Instead, give him the $500 and expect nothing in return. That is true charity. But the book of Proverbs, as does the whole Old Testament, it sees there's a danger in lending in the midst of calamity or need. And there were very strict regulations on that. You are not to change the relationships by becoming a master to the person in need. Be generous. Give. Secondly, the problem with being a cosigner, the the reason why being a cosigner is not being charitable, is that you are threatening, as the book of Proverbs says, you are threatening your own stability and the stability of your family for the venture of another person. And in co-signing, you could lose everything that you have. And here's the point. Charity is not intended to be exercised in a way that produces even more need later on. By co-signing, all of a sudden, you could be the next person needing a handout. And the book of Proverbs does not look on that favorably. You are not to give in such a way as to jeopardize your own ability to provide for you and your own family. That is not a good thing. Instead, again, give. If someone needs help, give. But don't co-sign. In fact, again, I want to say this. Don't ever go to another brother and say, hey, can you co-sign for me for this next venture? This is going to be the thing that's going to get me out of the, the ditch. And I'll finally be on a path to to stability and be able to sustain myself. Can you please co-sign? Don't ever ask someone to do that, especially another brother in Christ. If you need help, if you have a need, be honest. But don't ask others to risk their own stability in order for you to try some next venture to get you into prosperity. Proverbs does not recognize that as charity. Number five, practicing charity requires discernment. This is straightforward. Generosity is a powerful tool. Therefore, Proverbs makes several observations about this. Once you start being generous, you will have many friends. Put it that way. Proverbs 14, verse 20, The poor is hated by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. 19 verse 4, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Proverbs 19 verses 6 to 7, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. 
To go on to verse 7 there, the key issue is this. Be careful. Be discerning. Recognize that your generosity will attract a lot of people looking for handouts. Those who wanted to get rich off of your, your charity, be discerning. Finally, number six, practicing charity is no substitute for fearing God. Since generosity is so practical because it can be quantified, because it is tangible, it can be used easily as an external shell to conceal internal disobedience and disinterest in the things of the Lord. Proverbs teaches that, it, that giving must never be allowed to function as a substitute for wholehearted obedience and the fear of God, things that are intensely personal and really only known by God Himself. Whether you truly trust God, whether you truly fear Him, only God knows. Men can know your giving. Men can see how generous you are. And so the temptation is, is to rely upon giving as our way of thinking that everything is right with God. And, and using sacrifices as a, as, a, as a way to cover up what is dead man's bones on the inside. God sees through that. Proverbs 21 verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Or Proverbs 21 verse 27, the sacrifice, the giving of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent. And of course that takes us back to what Samuel said to Saul. When he said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice And to heed than the fat of rams. We need to close with this idea. On the one hand, I want to exhort you men to really consider how you can step up your giving to those in need to new ways that you've never practiced before. Trusting in the Lord, showing you fear Him, making Him great by how you use the wealth that God has given you to benefit other people according to the ways that God has described and for His glory. But at the same time, let this reminder stick that no amount of giving can make you right in God's eyes. No amount of giving can make you right. Let me read a quote from Charles Bridges. He said this, Art thou resting in the shell and surface Or art thou worshipping in the spirituality of service? Dost thou hear the voice calling thee from the dead forms to seek the living power of godliness? Cain brought sacrifice, but not the heart. Remember those externals that stand in the place of a consecrated heart. That these are the delusion of the great deceiver. Let thine heart be with God. Walking with him in the sound exercise of Christian obligation. Honoring the divine stamp on every commandment. Making conscience of every duty. 
And though we come short of everyone, yet daring not to neglect any. Your giving should be a result of a heart attitude. And that heart attitude must be steadfastly placed not on your own abilities, but on what Christ has done for you. You don't give to make yourself right in God's eyes. He gave to make you right in His eyes. And there's no amount of giving that God needs from you in order to be perfect. He is already. He doesn't need your offerings. He owns everything. So what is important is that we be the ultimate receivers not God. He's the ultimate giver. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 is really what, what this all boils down to, where Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Some of us have this all the way The opposite. We think that by us becoming poor, we somehow make God rich. We think that He needs us. He needs our giving, and that's what motivates us. And so we got to give and give and give and give, and we're under this impression that by giving, we will become poor so that He becomes great. That is exactly the the opposite of truth. We must always remember that whatever we do is just a response to His work of giving that is climaxed in the person of Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, became poor so that we could become rich. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time this evening that we've had to survey these precious truths from Proverbs. We pray that you would increase our trust and our fear so that we would more freely honor you, make much of you through our giving. Align our concerns to your concerns so that our pockets would reflect your purposes for us here on earth that our giving would reflect your great mission for us. We pray that we would have a greater appreciation for your abundant goodness, your promises, that you will never be outgiven by us. You will never remain a debtor. But you will lavishly, whether in this life or the life to come, reward for those acts of charity done in your name for your glory. We pray that these things would impact our lives in a very practical way. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ who became poor so that we would become rich. Amen.